Hello, I'm Eric Holdeman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews and commentaries about all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. Most organizations have access to incredibly powerful technologies, but struggle to use them to their full potential. Bent Ear's team of experienced technology and operations professionals systematically help organizations get the most out of the technology they already own. You can find them at www.bentearsolutions.com. Welcome to the Disaster Zone podcast. I'm Eric Holdeman, your host, and with me today is Guy Bays, Chief Technology Officer for Vibrant Planet. And we'll be discussing how technology can and is revolutionizing wildfire management. Please join me in welcoming Guy to the Disaster Zone podcast. Yeah, and thanks so much for having me, Eric. Really appreciate you taking the time out. And I was just telling Guy, he's not one of these 23-year-old whippersnapper IT guys. He, he's telling me he's been in the in the biz, I think, since 1998. And he is what, uh, in one place I worked, we called the wise old gray beards. Um, who, who've <laughs> I been around the block. have the gray beard going on. I don't know about the wise. <laughs> <laughs> well, guy, I, how about what has been your career path operating yeah. in the era of technology? Yeah, I've been a data geek since before I graduated with my CS degree. Um, I started off in mathematics, um, got my undergraduate in like sort of more theoretical math, but then I went back and got my CS in computer science master's degree. And during that period, I had some internships to help me pay my way through school. And one of the places I worked was actually a data warehousing outfit for the university that I worked with. And, you know, back then we didn't even know like to call it data warehousing. I think we called it like information retrieval and reporting or something like that. But they were basically responsible for understanding the financial picture of the university and, you know, what the grants coming in and money going out and all that kind of stuff. And so that was my first job, you know, and ever since then, it's been like data. I got a job with a startup helping build a clickstream data warehouse right out of school. At the time, it was one of the biggest data environments on the planet. I think a entire terabyte. <laughs> you know? So yeah. you look at it now and you're like, you just giggle because your phone's got more than that. But at the time, well, it was challenging. Yeah. Just on that, I mean, really, mm-hmm. yeah, I've been telling emergency managers about, you know, every element we do is going to be driven by technology. And you being early into it, into the data side of it, and I said, every, it's all about the data. It is mm-hmm. all about who owns it, amalgamating it, sifting it, sorting it. I mean, I, I've exhausted my technical ability to talk to it, but... Uh, I would think being early to the game on data has helped you tremendously because I think that's really, when you're talking about artificial uh, intelligence, it's all about data. And I need to caution you that we're acronym free. So even though me being a a history major, I figured out CS is computer science. Yeah, sorry, (laughs) I shouldn't say that. Go ahead. (laughs) Tell us more about Data. Yeah, and I think you're dead right. I think one of the things that's been really obvious 
um, during the course of my career is that data is kind of like a exponential compounding thing. Like the more data you have, not only is that new data valuable, but it makes all the old data even more valuable. And so, you know, we've gone from data systems and reporting <laughs> being like some weird little sidecar that the company had to do in order to, you know, pass compliance to like, it's the focus of a lot of what Silicon Valley is doing now. And that's because our ability to both capture, store, and utilize data has just continued to grow over that 25-year period. So what did you do when you were just warehousing data? Then then what was came next? Um, okay, so then I worked for a while for Morgan Stanley doing financial stuff, right? Like um, we were, I was actually part of a small startup that got bought by Morgan Stanley in an attempt to get online. So I was with them actually during 9-11. Um, which was pretty incredible experience and terrible in a lot of ways. Um, for a while, I worked at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories on this project called the National Ignition Facility, which is a big fusion research laser out in the desert. And that was all about like data. And that was really when I first got my my first exposure to sort of image-based data, because one of the primary ways you capture data about a laser is you split off a little bit of the laser and you make pictures with it. A lot of the the... Um, instruments that they use to understand how the machine is operating end up generating images. And so I got a, got a taste for that. Uh, then I went with to Facebook. I was with them for quite a while, helping get through their IPO and help them monetize their systems. Left Facebook, I went to Lyft and did something pretty similar, helping them get through their IPO and, you know, getting their data systems in shape. And after Lyft, I was pretty burnt out, honestly. And feeling a little unfulfilled, you know, I, I think that the the Facebook experience, especially kind of, I, I feel some, some real guilt about that. You know, I wasn't part of a lot of the stuff that they're having the light shown on, nor was I even aware of it. But when I look back over my experience and ask myself, did like what I do really contribute to the, you know, betterment of humanity? I have a hard time answering that question. Um, so I retired and, you know, was going to do some soul searching. I bought this place up in the mountains in the Cascades of Southern Oregon and a big fire came through there and it missed me by about a mile and it burned down two houses and two towns next door. And it was like, it was a disaster zone. It was a lot like Lahaina actually, like a really fast moving firestorm you know, trying to get people out of the way of it. Yeah. And what, um, what year, what year was that? That must've been 2020. Yeah. It must've been 2020. Yeah, you know my my wife. Um, Maybe twenty nineteen. It was the year. It was the year of the really bad fires. Yeah. I remember she she lives in Springfield, and a home she used to live in uh, burned in that fire. And number of people yeah. she knew because she lived in the area lost home. So it was yeah, it was terrible. I mean, it went from like some guy's cigarette ash to like a fire towns on fire in like three hours. That's how fast it moved. And the disaster control stuff fell apart and communication fell apart and evacuation fell apart. And it's just like, you know, collapse of all of our planning, I think. And while it was going on, like most of the reliable information that you could get about what was happening with the fire was actually through social media, just self-reported. You know, like various communities sprang up on Facebook and Twitter and people were like posting pictures of like, you know, it's burning up the piggly wiggly, you know, hit the Dairy Queen, you know. And um, when it was all over, I had a bunch of climate refugees living on my lawn. Um, one of the things that people don't realize about these events is even if your house doesn't get burned down, 
it trashes the electrical distribution and the water distribution systems for like a long time. And so the, even some of the parts of those towns that weren't destroyed, you couldn't live in those houses. They had no water, they had no electricity. <laughs> and I, and as I'm like, you know, so I, all the people I knew, I basically invited them to come up and, you know, crash with me since I wasn't affected. And I got to think, and I think I know what my next project's going to be. You know, I think that there's a real opportunity here to leverage data and technology to do something about this. Okay. All right. Excellent. Well, how about share, uh, it's uh, just a mm -hmm. natural lead in here to share a little bit about uh, Vibrant Planet. What challenge is it you're trying to meet? Maybe yeah. it, you can talk to that a little bit already, but and how does technology fit into that equation? Yeah, so my first ideas were around early warning. And I think there's a lot of people that are doing good work today on detection and early warning systems for fires. I got talked out of that by one of my friends, Maria Tran. Uh, she was a product manager of mine up on and off for like years, you know, different companies. And she convinced me that where we could best leverage our abilities was more on preventative measures. Like it goes to that old saying, like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. How do we keep the fires from happening or keep them from being as severe as they are now? And, you know, if you think about the way fire normally behaves in the Western North American ecosystem, this is pretty weird. You know, it's not, this is not working as intended. And part of that is climate change, you know, like there's no doubt that hotter and drier and all that. But part of it is also some of the stuff you you mentioned to me is like we've kind of messed up these forests over the last like couple hundred years. We've suppressed fire when we shouldn't have, like they need naturally occurring fire to be healthy. We've, we've introduced non-native tree species. We've let the forests grow very dense when they're meant to be more spread out and they're meant to be more dominated by really mature trees that are pretty immune. And as a result, we built up basically a huge tinderbox. And now when we throw a spark into that tinderbox, instead of getting low intensity fire that kind of burns along, you know, about at your ankles <laughs> and kind of clears out the trash, we get these huge firestorms that just destroy everything and destroy entire forests and nothing survives. So we have to get the forest back into a state of equilibrium. And that's really what Vibrant Planet is all about. It's like managing that process. Okay. So getting deeper on the technology side, then how, how it advances, you've got this data background at cloud yep. commuting, computing, um, cheaper hardware than it's ever been in the past. Uh, and I'm assuming... Uh, I have some notes here. ML is machine learning. Yep. How, how's all that fit together? And what's the difference? Is machine learning a component of AI? How, how do those two terms interface with one another? Yeah, AI is, is kind of an overloaded term, in my opinion. It can mean a bunch of different things. But most of what you hear people talk about today when they use the word AI is really machine learning. It's really techniques to train algorithms and models against vast amounts of data to enable you to handle complexity that you could never handle before. There's also this branch of AI, which is about creating um, like human equivalent intelligence. Like mm -hmm. we're not doing that stuff, right? What I'm doing is I'm trying to really build a very strong understanding of the natural world in order to optimize how we interact with it. So what does Virate Planet do? So 
in order to fix this problem I described, the government and the private sector and local communities are doing a lot of work. They're pouring money into getting out into the forest and trying to restore them through controlled burns through and also trying to protect themselves, like selective tree removal, fire breaks, all that kind of stuff. It's still like it's such a big problem that they can't treat everything and they can't fix everything. So there's a need to prioritize. There's a need to understand what are the things that if I have X amount of dollars, say I have $50 million, where can I best spend that $50 million in order to achieve my goals, given that it would probably cost me $5 billion to treat the entire area? Um, so the first thing we do is we use machine learning and satellite imagery and LIDAR, which is uh, laser-based three-dimensional modeling. And we build up like a tree model of the whole forest for the whole Western U.S., um, at, down to the individual tree. Like I can tell you like, you know, how many trees there are in this area. That that kind of thing was not possible before the ML and AI revolution happened. So this okay. is like the it, it, we directly utilize a bunch of the transformers and technology that power things like Dolly and other image systems because they're like orders of magnitude more effective than anything that you know we had like even five or ten years ago. And that lets okay. us say hey, we know what the trees are. You know, you, just from satellite imagery, which is only two dimensional, like we can tell you how tall they are and like how dense the forest is and things like that. The second so, place it really, I'll go ahead. No, good. Well, just on the LIDAR piece, I was introduced I, to this probably 20, 25 years ago and the United States Geological Service yeah. was using that to find faults up here in the Pacific Northwest where I, hmm. where I am because the tree cover covers it up and they would normally shoot those LIDAR fly these uh, grid patterns in the, mm -hmm. in the fall and winter when there weren't leaves on. Uh, and of course, we always have needles and a conifer <laughs> forest, but to be able to figure out if there's a, a difference in elevation where you could find uh, actual surface fault type of deal. But uh, evidently the LIDAR technology had advanced in those that time. And now you're actually measuring tree heights and all that. Yeah, it works really well. And it's actually the data that we use to train off of. Um, it's If you had LIDAR everywhere and it's up to date, the problem would be easy to understand the forest. The issue that you get into is the flights are expensive and there's no program to fly them across the entire Western US. So they're kind of piecemeal and then they don't get updated. So, you know, you'll have a fire go through and you've got old LIDAR instead of new LIDAR. The nice thing about satellite imagery is that you have it everywhere and it's updated, like, you know, usually a couple times a week, but it's two-dimensional. So it's nowhere near as powerful as what the three-dimensional LIDAR stuff is. But if you train a model on LIDAR to interpret the satellite imagery, then you're in business. And that's where, like, a lot of the new toys that the machine learning folks are providing us really come into play. Okay. Where where does, um, or explain, if we <laughs> talk about, there's always been this data which you were early into, but we hear about big data, data or data. Yeah. And what's sure. the, when did you know? Is that just an, a term that's thrown about, or is it how how's it tied maybe to cloud computing or or what? Yeah, I mean, they're they're you're really you're you're nailing it. Actually, I have a blog post that's real, that kind of goes through this, but there's really like four advances that are fueling AI. One and the first one is big data that you're talking about. Like we have 
built technology that allows us to manipulate hundreds of terabytes or petabytes of data in efficient ways, not just store it, but actually be able to query it and do things with it. And a lot of that technology came out of the Silicon Valley advertising companies like Google and Facebook. It was stuff that I worked on, you know, like Hadoop was the beginning of it really. And so you end up being able to like manage much larger kind sets of data than you ever could before and do stuff with it and do it in a cost-effective way. So that was like the first piece of the puzzle. The second one was really the things that have been happening with GPUs, like the, the hardware advances with NVIDIA and, and GPU compute is like amazing. It's like game-changing and it's really the, the engine that lets us do that analysis and lets us build these models. And then the third one is the techniques. Like there's been super big advances in ML itself, like the, the attention-based ML models, which were not cost-effective to actually even run before. And now all of a sudden you can get them to run on the GPUs using the big data infrastructure. So is it all these huge server farms that are crunching all of this? Yep. That's the fourth one is the cloud. I can't afford a big, huge server farm. I got to rent one. <laughs> you know, I'm just a little startup. If it had been where I got to go out and buy a bazillion GPUs and have them in a building somewhere, we never would have got started. But the cloud makes it, everybody gives it, gives access to all these things in a way that like opens the door for small companies and innovation. Okay. All right. All right. And yeah, it makes it, democratizes the, yeah. the data some, right? I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, we hear this all the time from politicians, but people love simple solutions. It's <laughs> just, you know, I can fix this or all oh, the way to change this and just do this. But today's world, it it just seems increasingly difficult to achieve. So how can data-driven decisions help and how does that work with climate change impacts we're seeing uh, today? Yeah, I think that there's a, couple, there, there's a couple of different ways to interpret that insightful comment. One of them is some things are just complicated and even figuring out what you need to do is hard. Some things um, are simple in the sense that you know what you need to do, but then doing it is difficult, right? Like we, we kind of know yeah. what we need to do with the forest treatments. The problem is to do it right would cost more money than anybody is ever going to have to spend. And so the doing it becomes complicated because you need to figure out exactly how to optimize your spend because you're never going to have enough money. And that's what our platform is all about. And then the, I think the third piece is, so you did a thing. How do you know it worked? You know, like the ecology is hard and complicated and it doesn't always like turn out the way you expect it. And so using data to monitor the results of your intervention and figure out like whether it's actually making things better or worse in the ways you expected and then tweaking your science in order to accommodate what's actually happening is pretty important. Yeah, the old so performance we're management. Firmly in the, we're firmly in the, like the things that need to happen are pretty simple and doing it is really hard. I think if you switch gears to something like fusion or, you know, those those problems are just hard out of the gate. You know, like nobody knows how to do those things. <laughs> okay, so you, I, I, when I hear you saying, you think you have the answer, it's just the implementation that's going to be harder. I think that we have it. Yeah, we have the first iteration of the answer. I think that we will learn a lot over the next couple of years, and we have to work very closely with our our customers that are actually out there doing these things to figure out, you know, to make our make our solutions better. But yeah, the the fact that you can take 
the same kind of optimization algorithms that we used at places like Facebook to optimize ad campaigns. And you can apply those to like forest treatments. Like we don't have to start from scratch, right? Like we, we've got all this stuff from other verticals that we can just apply to this problem, which is pretty powerful. Okay. So it's it's good to use the word customer. It's always yeah. interesting. Who, who's your customer? Yeah, so really- or Potential have, customer, you know? Yeah, we have a, we have a few. Um, really two big buckets of customers. Um, the first one is the federal and state governments that are in charge of managing large tracts of forest, um, like the U.S. Forest Service, uh, BLM, stuff like that. So they all have projects and plans and, you know, they're direct customers of ours and we're helping them treat the, their most at-risk forests and figure out what to apply. Um, but that those people only apply to government land, right? You've also got like this what we call the WUI, the wild urban interface and the wildlands around cities and things where ownership is like split in many ways and you, to do anything requires like a, a community. And so usually what happens there is there are local not-for-profits that spring up, um, conservancies, wild safe councils, stuff like that, that are smallish, you know, like maybe only a few million acres under management and that are responsible for coordinating treatment around and across all this mix of like federal and, and private landowners. They usually have on their board of directors, like fire chiefs and mayors and stuff. And so those, those not-for-profits, there are thousands of them across the West, and they're actually also a very important customer of ours. All right. Well, why don't you talk about that a little bit more? Mm-hmm. I've got a break coming up, but uh, I'd like to talk about this community engagement and implementation mm-hmm. and how yeah. tech can empower local communities with wildfire prevention. Yeah, the, those local communities typically don't have like huge technical departments or, you know, big IT shops. Um, they usually will hire like independent consultants to come in and help them figure out their plans. It'll often take five to 10 years to, to sort it all. And the problem that they're running into is first, they don't really have five to 10 years anymore. Like this is immediate. And then the second one is as they're being given more money, because they're mostly funded through federal and state grants they're having to do more and they're having to figure out how to scale. Maybe before they did one treatment every 10 years and now they have to do like three treatments a year or something. And so they're really looking for like sort of package software solutions to help them figure out what they're going to, what they need to be doing. Um, The second problem that they have is they have a lot of stakeholders with different priorities and a very typical failure state for these projects is they'll make one of those stakeholders very alienated and they'll get litigated. And then as soon as the project gets litigated, it's basically dead. Like it'll go to court and it'll be years, right? So the nice thing about the being able to do these planning activities in a couple of seconds versus five to 10 years is we can cut plans for each stakeholder community that optimize the thing that they care about. So maybe it's Sierra Club really cares about endangered species. The water commissioner really cares about the safety and security of the water systems. Utilities care about their right-of-ways, Right towns care about not burning down. It turns out that while the, these community, these different stakeholders think they have like really dueling priorities, at the end of the day, there's a lot of overlap. And so if we can cut like plans for each one of them, we can then take the plans and we can pull out the commonalities. And we can say like all, you know, like of all the things we should be doing, 50% of those treatments will help everybody. 
And, you know, that they're like no brainers and we should just go do those 50%. And then the other 50%, there's actual trade-offs, you know, maybe the thing that is good for the reservoir is not good for the spotted owls. And so we have to have a conversation around those and figure out what we want to do. But in the meantime, let's go do the 50% that work for everybody, right? And I think that's been like a big unlock. It helps like remove a lot of these log jams. And you can only do it if you can do, you know, very fast, very sophisticated analytics across lots of different dimensions. Okay. Well, it's been fascinating here, uh, Guy. What I'd like to do is take a quick break for a message from uh, one of my sponsors, and then we'll be right back. Most organizations have access to incredibly powerful technologies, but struggle to use them to their full potential. Bent Ear's team of experienced technology and operations professionals systematically help organizations get the most out of the technology they already own. You can find them at www.bentearsolutions.com. And we are back talking today with Guy Bays, CTO, the Chief Technology Officer for Vibrant Planet. And Guy, there was a Wildland Fire Mitigation Management Commission report. That's a mouthful. Uh, what did that <laughs> say about the need for a wildfire workforce and shifting from a reactive to a proactive mindset? Yeah, I haven't um, read that report in detail, but I understand some of the elements that are in it. And I think one of the, the things that, that definitely is worth talking about is that as we're scaling up these activities, you know, we're doing more of these treatments, more of these control burns, more of all this stuff. Um, we're requiring more and more of a relatively specialized workforce. Uh, the people that go out into the woods and do this stuff, right? Like they don't grow on trees. They need training. You know, usually it's like vocational training a year or two certifications and stuff like that. And they're in short supply right now. Even firefighters are in short supply, like wildland firefighters. And we don't really have a good strategy um, as a as a or as a culture to like invest in training these folks. We know we're going to need them. We don't know exactly like where, but one of the things Vibrant Planet can kind of figure out for you is like where you're likely to be spending money in the future. So we we're always pretty interested in like helping um, plan out like where these things go, but. But the and it's also like a a really good thing in a way because it's providing a bunch of jobs that are pretty accessible. You know, you don't have to have like four year college degrees, and they're often in like pretty at need areas, like pretty rural, relatively poor areas, as opposed to like the cities where there's there's lots of jobs. So if we can figure out how to like plan, forecast, and scale that workforce, it's going to be great for everybody. Okay, and. You know, you talk about it, it's actually to a degree we've been in reverse gear on some. We know we're supposed to be working on the pro proactive, but all the firefighting uh, processes has eaten up a lot of budget. That's been a, a huge yeah. issue for states and the federal government. They're robbing the prevention side to fight the fires. <laughs> they're actually robbing everybody because a lot of it comes out of the general fund at the end of the day. And, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's so it's very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> What what is the policy impact of environmental AI? How how's impacting policy making? Um, I think that we're starting to imagine a world where we can actively manage our natural ecosystem in ways that we couldn't imagine before. 
ecology is really hard and humanity's attempts at massively interfering with it have usually been around the success rate of like introducing rabbits to Australia, right? Like we blow ourselves up a lot. Um, but the data and the science and the, um, and the sophistication, we're starting to get a handle on like what we can do that will actually help and imagine like a more proactive future. Like there's a lot of work reintroducing beavers into the West right now, because we, understand not only what the important role they play but also where we should be putting the beavers and where they're likely to survive and it's not going to blow up i don't think like the rabbits to australia did like it's actually going to end up helping so so one of the nice things about ml is it lets you handle it lets you understand really complicated things you know things that you could never manage manage like writing down all the rules for and ecology is one of those really complicated things i think it's still early days and i think that you know we, we haven't right, really nailed it, but I think we can start to see a path forward to really understanding that. And I think with like eight-ish billion humans on the planet, we're going to have to be pretty active about managing our ecosystem. Okay. Well, I've just put English ivy in that same box with rabbits in Australia. Yeah. Whoever brought Cut English zoo. ivy. There's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> they must have had a hillside, I guess. I don't know, but... Um... As a gardener, I battled yeah. English ivy, and I haven't even planted it. It just uh, sprouts up. <laughs> yeah, like it's first. also interesting that like it's not as simple as restoring things to the way they used to be, because mm -hmm. climate change is happening, and the climate is shifting, and the the, the climate is not going to be what it used to be. We often mm -hmm. say things like, you know, we're not building forests in Central California to be like forests in Central California. We're also actually building them to be more like forests in Northern Baja, California, right? Like everything is going to migrate, like what species you want to go for. But the migrations are slow. So trying to figure out like how to weave them in is hard. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, you know, uh, I can't think. There's a musical, uh, boy, I'm trying to think. Daisy May is a female character. And um, you're old enough to remember. Do you remember who Daisy May I'm was? I'm pretty old. <laughs> yeah, Daisy May, it's uh, Little Abner. It's a musical. Yeah. And uh, she wants to become more sophisticated and all that. And uh, he becomes sophisticated. And then she sings the song, put him back the way he was. <laughs> and um, I, what you just talked about, there, you can't put it back the way it was. It's really a new a new was in, in yeah. the future, right? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> the pause was me coughing there, folks. <laughs> I think we're in an anti-science, anti-fact era that is challenging what data and research is telling us. What what can be done to address that? I mean, I don't know. You're, you're trying to do this community engagement. I'm sure there's people within the broader community, whatever that is, challenging what you're telling them. Yeah. I think that a big piece of that, at least in this particular space, is picking your battles. And the reality is that regardless of whether you're the most extreme liberal or the most extreme conservative, you probably don't want wildfires in your life. And you probably realize they're happening more. And you may have a bunch of disagreements about why but the treatments are pretty brain dead, right? And so you just put all that aside, guys. Like, I don't, I, 
I've got my opinions that are science-based about why they're happening. You may have your opinions that are different, but they're happening. And clearly the way to make them less severe is to thin the forest, to get controlled burns back in, to do fire breaks, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think if we focus on actions and outcomes rather than the, the places where we get hung up, it helps unblock us. Now, not everywhere and not for everything, but for some things it does. You know, it's still somewhat early for the term artificial intelligence to be used. It really became public just a little bit more over a year ago where everybody became more yeah. aware because chat GPT, I think. Uh, you know, the pan Pandora was out of the box before that. <laughs> yep. But um, but do you think um, saying AI is being used as a negative or could be perceived as a negative? Just that aspect maybe... You, you, you talk about it all, but don't use that term. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I tend to use the term ML more just because I think it's better defined. Like when I say AI, I don't know what somebody hears. You know, like it, it could be like anything from what I think of as machine learning all the way up to you're trying to build an intelligent algorithm to take over the planet, right? Like it's, it's just a wide, ill-defined term. And I know the media is super excited by it because it's kind of sexy, but I, I'm a practical results-oriented guy. And so when I use words, I want to make sure that people understand what the word means. And so I'll say, this is machine learning. Let me tell you what it is. This is what we use. Is it AI? Well, it depends on how you define AI, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's a great idea and concept. Everybody take note of that. And honestly, the big... practitioners call it machine learning more than they call it AI anyway. Okay. <laughs> like, Good, good. So what, what partnerships are going to be possible for disaster prevention and response? I mean, we talked about the community piece already. Mm -hmm. Anything else? I think that there's a huge potential partnership with, between communities and insurance. Um, like in the West Coast right now, we're having a terrible time with insurance companies pulling out because they can't figure out a way to actually stay solvent by insuring these, these properties that are at risk now. And you've got a, a big reaction from the politicians and from the residents that they don't want to see their insurance rates go through the roof. And the reality is they're going through the roof anyway. Like I, I was talking to my sister the other day. She's in North Carolina and they're jacking her rate up like 75 percent in one year, you know, for homeowners insurance. And it's not just fires. Right. So that there's this synergy where if communities can engage in preventative treatments that reduce their risk of wildfire, then perhaps then it should reduce their insurance rates as well, right? And if we can do a good enough job on using data to craft that idea, then it work, it's a win for everybody. Like insurers figure out a way to stay profitable. Communities pay less, probably more than they're paying now, but less than they might end up paying. There's less events, you know, so I think that's a huge potential like partnership. I think the other one is with utilities. You know, obviously PG&E and other yeah. big utilities have like a lot of a lot of problems with wildfires and trying to figure out how to not cause them and how to you know treat their own right of ways in a ways that prevent them. So there's another piece of it there. But I think what you're going to see is a lot of like overlap between um, biological services, ecological services in general. 
like there's a lot of time, like forests are not just forests, they're also water, right? Like in the West, if you don't have forests, you don't have water because the forests shade the snow and prevent it from melting and no no shade, no water, right? Um, so again, e ecology is a web, it's all interrelated. And so, you know, pushing on one place in a helpful way will generally help in other places. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, uh, last question I have for you, Guy, is, What's coming over the horizon with the pace of technology yeah. advancements? It, it, I'm not asking you to tell me what you know for sure. I'm talking about just wild speculation, <laughs> beat up on the desk thinking. Well, but things that we, we kind of know for sure are it's going to become very difficult to tell human-created and machine-created content apart. And it's going to be very easy to create fake videos and deep fakes in ways that are very difficult for even experts to 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 um, tell the difference, right? And so that's a thing that's kind of coming <laughs> that's now. Like you know, higher education places are suffering. Like, how do you know the kid wrote the essay or not? So I think that there's a lot of um, adapting to a world where it's information is becoming less and less trustworthy. And I actually think it's harder on the people that are older, honestly, like the me's and you's like the fun thing about my kid who's 17 is like, he grew up in a world where he knew damn well, he can't trust anything he sees on YouTube. He can't trust anything that comes out of Facebook. He can't trust anything that comes out of Twitter. He's super like, yeah, you know, it's all, it could all be crap. So he's got that instinct sort of automatically embedded in them. I grew up in a world where like there were three networks that broadcast the news and you could kind of trust them. And so I'm used to being able to trust things I see on TV yeah. and it's harder for me, you know? So I think that a lot of the education needs to be aimed at folks like me, you know, rather than like folks like him. So that's like short-term. I think long-term we're going to continue to see um, machine learning and AI get better and better at doing what we think of as high-level cognitive functions of humans. And we don't know exactly where that's going to end. I, I personally don't think that we're going to end up with like a, what they call a general artificial intelligence, like a thing that can be do everything a human can. I think what we'll end up with is a bunch of specialized ones like chat GPT. Each one can do a chunk of what a human does, but a lot of those added together are still going to be pretty disruptive on the job market and pretty disruptive on society as a whole. We really need some legislation and sort of a game plan at the national level on how to deal with it. And I feel like everybody's still trying to figure it out. So I'm hoping to see that emerge. Yeah. Well, at the national level, they're trying to pass a budget. <laughs> you know, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. If they get... Anybody even knows what the rules should be, you know, like yeah. it's, it's, it's such a new thing and it's coming so fast that it's, it's difficult to even know how to, how to parse it. Yeah. It is a challenge with everything, social media, Drone technology is the policy side is always slow to react. And then a lot of times it's, when they do react, the technology is leapt uh, yeah. further behind where they were, the issues they were trying to address. Are yeah, my, my child's school is trying to figure out, are these things cheating that we should ban? Are they tools that we should encourage? Is there something, are they both? If so, when, <laughs> you know, like clearly spell checkers started out like this, right? Like a spell checker when I was a kid was like, you weren't allowed to use it on a test. And now nobody would think about applying that kind of rule, right? <laughs> uh, that's, that's it. Well, guys, this has just been a very 
interesting discussion for me, I'm sure for many listeners that tune into this. So I just want to thank you to Guy Bays for being a guest here on the Disaster Zone podcast. Yeah, and thanks so much for having me, Eric, and for all the insightful questions. Really appreciate it. Well, as, as I've been saying for years, technology would be the driver in everything we do in the future. As we heard today, that includes machine learning, AI, and incorporating it in how we address climate change impacts, uh, in particular, um, what Vibrant Planet is doing today in their uh, area of interest. And now a reminder to everyone, be safe. Think about what you can do today to become personally better prepared for the next disaster. If you like this Disaster Zone podcast, please share a link to it with your social media contacts. Thanks for listening and be safe. Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters. You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disaster-zone.com.